afternoon and good evening wherever and whenever you may be and welcome to episode 51 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Clarice Lockery. I'm a Mormon woman. And I'm Hannah Flint. Or Helena Flint. (laughs) As a PR called me this week. (laughs) This week, a literary classic gets the musical treatment in Cyrano and I speak to Erica Schmidt who adapted her stage show for the screen. Why I man? Wait, what accent is that meant to be? <laughs> why I man? Why I Newcastle? Why I man? You know what I mean, like? Oh gosh. Oh, okay. Why I man? Jim Broadway gets caught up in an art heist in the Duke. I tried the accent. I, I had an I appreciate that you you made the effort. A for effort. A for D for, for attainment. attainment. <laughs> And we take a look inside a Swiss care home with La Mif. Plus, in this week's hot take, what to make of the Oscar ceremony after a new criteria limits the number of televised awards. Le boo. Uh, <laughs> but first up, how has everyone's weeks been? What, what have people been up to? I have been listening to Michael Cacino's The Batman Score ad nauseum because it's awesome. Is it available? Can we talk about the score? The score is available. We can talk about the score. Okay, because doesn't it sound like his theme is like sounds like the Imperial March? <laughs> well, I watched it when I was watching it the second time. I was like, it's really heavy on like the big boom of the what are they call what's those drums? Timpanis. Well, no, those big drums. It's a bit aren't they the big drums? The big round the ones. Timpanis. Like... Is that what they're called? I think so. There's, I mean. There's a little bit of it, I guess, but like the theme itself is like two notes. So compare that to the Imperial March, which is a lot more. I I just think it was like it's just. But a, it's, it's the same two notes as the beginning of the because isn't it? Yeah. Yes, that's what it is. Bum, See, that's bum, what I mean. Yeah, bum, 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 yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. yeah. I get you. Yes. But yeah, then the score is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, his use of Ave Maria all the way through is incredible. Ave Maria, never heard before in film. <laughs> Indeed. But That's yeah, no, it's interesting. Both both Gacino and Hans Zimmer. Um, Zim Zimmer. I will always do that every time you say his name. It's illegal for me not to do that. <laughs> Thank you for your service, Helena Flight. Um, yeah, both Zimmer and Gacino, their Batman score is only two notes. Um, which I find very, very interesting. And Gacino, his year is incredible. He's got the Batman, Lightyear, Jurassic World Dominion, and Thor Love and Thunder, all within a few months of each other. He is incredible. <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah, I hopefully I'll get to chat with him at some point this year. Can I tell you my Jurassic World-related thing? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in my continued effort to complete all the Lego <laughs> Nintendo Switch games. <laughs> I'm on. I'm, I swear to God, guys, I'm on like 86 percent on Lego Jurassic World, and I recently unlocked the figures Steven Spielberg and Colin Trevorrow. So I can now play what? Steven Spielberg and Colin Trevorrow. What does a Colin Trevorrow Lego look like? <laughs> I, I mean, oh, I haven't got like. He, what's the distinguishing feature? Of you Colin can't Trevor even tell it's him, but you can tell it's Spielberg. Okay. You know what I mean? Like the beard, have the, the glasses. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question. Are you one of those gamers who sort of will go on YouTube and search like how to find such and such and then do it, or are you just gonna, you know, do it yourself and look around and all the rest of it? I do it myself for completing it, as in like doing it all, mm-hmm. and then 
when I'm trying to complete it, there are times when I do look at a walk around like, where the fuck is this mini? <laughs> but then what's yeah. really good is that sometimes you can get if you get <laughs> here we go. If you uh <laughs> if you get enough like of the like coins in Lego, you can buy things. So that's how you buy and unlock and all the characters and stuff like that. So but if you um, there's these like once you complete it, it opens up these other games like demi games with Deadpool oh, oh no not Jurassic World would be different. But Deadpool, say so, so Deadpool. Mm-hmm. And like you get these red these other bricks and they can give you like special things. So mm-hmm. they can either every time you like to, like the the coins it where they're worth twice as much or six times as much. Or you can get a track stud. That's what it called studs. You can do a track stud. So you actually just if you walk past them, they just like zoom. So you don't have to walk mm-hmm. into them. And there's this one called a mini t- kit detector that I got. And so it's mm-hmm. over for this game because <laughs> now I just have to go back in. It just gives points to the little zap, little arrows say, It's here. It's right here. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> so yeah. That's useful. Chloe, so have you been gaming? Uh yeah, I've been playing uh, Watch Dogs Legion at the moment, which is weird because it's like a pretty good recreation of central London. So I'll be like <laughs> walking around, like going to screening, being like, oh, yeah, I ran over somebody in a motorcycle <laughs> on that street corner yesterday. Hmm, nice. But it's pretty good. I like it. I mean, you this is your villain game origin game. story, isn't it? It's like, it's like it just felt too good in a game. Let's make it real. It just don't good cross in the game. any roads. I don't like people over in the game, but the game algorithm's not good enough that the people move out of the way quicker, like as quickly as a human would. So sometimes I do hit them on accident, and I say, "Sorry, but I'm trying to defeat fascism here." So <laughs> apologies for that. Oh God! Speaking of. <laughs> oh. Um, I feel like God, I love this segue of like, but speaking of like, but isn't it, is it kind of weird? Do you ever, are you getting this moment? I was thinking today, it's like, we're going to record a podcast today and there are people on Ukrainian radio teaching their citizens how to make Molotov cocktails. <laughs> it's just like, just mad, ridiculous times. Uh, obviously stand with Ukraine. Not you, Russia. I stand with Russian cinema. <laughs> that's it yeah, yeah. Mm. and with uh and with all the the russian people who are protesting yes. against the war at the moment which is a very incredibly brave thing to do yes agreed 100 hopefully this will be a reprieve to just escape but for now we're not going to talk about that <laughs> let's talk about cinema, cinema. which is its own escape so yeah, so let's talk about Cyrano. My sole purpose on this earth is to love Roxanne. Does she know? The world will never accept someone like me and a tall, beautiful woman. We have no money. A clever marriage is your only option. I won't be rescued. I'm not in distress. Love, does that mean nothing to you? Children need love. Adults need money. So Cyrano de Bergerac or Cyrano de Bergerac, it's a thing. Just pick whatever you want to pick. <laughs> <laughs> you say Cyrano, I say Cyrano. Cyrano. <laughs> like, we're going to go with Cyrano because that's what they say in the movie. <laughs> we don't want to complicate things. 
Cyrano de Bergerac dazzles everyone with his ferocious wordplay and brilliant swordplay. However, he's convinced his appearance renders him unworthy of the affections of the luminous Roxanne, a devoted friend who's in love with someone else. Erica Schmidt adapted Edmund Rothstein's play into a musical for the stage, which Joe Wright has brought to the screen with original stars Peter Dinklage and Haley Bennett, Calvin Harrison Jr. and Ben Mendelsohn, Bashir Salahuddin, Monica Dolan and Ruth Sheen round out the cast. Uh, so I spoke to Erica Schmidt a little bit about, it wasn't Christmas also, so <laughs> uh, please take a mental time machine back to then. But I spoke to her just a little bit about the process of adapting Rostand's play, uh, you know, first for stage, then onto film, and then having to essentially give away like your artistic baby to Joe Wright and say, there you go. <laughs> Do what you will. <laughs> but our interview is uh, starting now. So I uh, want to thank Erica Schmidt so much for joining us today on the Fade to Black podcast. Uh, and I want to congratulate you first on such a, a wonderful and like swooningly romantic film Serrano is. Uh, it's one of my favorite types of movies so thank you first off for that if we're providing that to me my pleasure <laughs> um and uh, it's interesting I so I, I was rereading the original play and um this is in the film as well you know a, a part an element of Serrano's pride is that he absolutely refuses to have his words and his artistic vision compromised in any way which was very funny to me because I mean the, your production, you wrote and direct, I mean, that is so much of your vision, your pure vision. And I, I wondered what it was like then handing that vision over a little bit to Joe Wright, who um, himself has such a sort of distinctive way of looking at things. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's, that's really the question that <laughs> you, you've got it. Um, you've, you've bared my soul. Um, yeah, that was really, I think, the, the the journey for me because I I adapted the play to direct it, um, and uh, I was trying intentionally to pare it down to make it for a very small cast of ten, and to um, strip away the language and take away the nose um, and give Roxanne agency and um, yeah, it was sort of it was you know it was it's personal. Um, because it's a classic that you know will go on and on and on and I, I, when you're doing a play there's really a very small amount of people that are coming to see it um and then joe wanted to to make the film of it and it really was about um you know giving it to him that you know he saw something in my vision of the piece that he wanted to use to make his film version and i'd never written a screenplay before so it was very much about like trying to figure out what it was that he wanted that he had that what he'd responded to in in what I had done on stage that he wanted to keep and then also what he wanted to change um you know which was a was a real collaboration yeah it's interesting you mentioned Roxanne's agency because that's something I actually wanted to pick up on uh because I I really loved the way that you wrote her because she does have an expanded space in the story and she does as you say have more agency but um it doesn't fall into that trope that I see sometimes nowadays where we assume that any fictional woman created before the 20th century is, oh, she's such an idiot. She's so oppressed. Like we need to come in with our modern eyes and completely reinvent her. I, I like that you brought out the wit and intelligence of a character that's already there in the original play. 
Yeah, I love I love the original play and she's um you know, it's very slim on backstory, but she's an orphan. Um we know that and then the original they're cousins which we got rid of um early on in the in the play version because I think we hear that differently now than, <laughs> than 124 years ago. <laughs> it makes you go what? Um uh, and uh, uh, her love of words and her, she's what what they call the priestess, that she would she would have belonged to like a very elite kind of group of um, women who were actively pursuing literature. Uh, and so, I mean, there's so much there. That's not, um, but the thing that I quibbled with or struggled with within the Rostan was the fact that she finds out after 15 years that she's been deceived and lied to by the two men that she loved more than anything. And um, she doesn't get angry and she doesn't question it or fight or, you know, say, what about the life we could have had? And that kind of rang false to me. It's very much Cyrano, the Rostan play is very much about Cyrano. It's about him, you know, and his fighting his own demons. And the, I mean, right after he tells Roxanne, he says, uh, and I was stolen from by Moliere. So it's almost like his his words in the theater are equivalent to his words as Christian for Roxanne. Um, he doesn't kind of separate the two. And I wanted to, to make it more about their love um, and that being the real loss um, that they both lost on a, a life they could have had together. Um, and, and that was sort of like the, the focus of, of my piece. Yeah, and, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how do you see the relationship between the dialogue that you've written, the music uh, by Aaron and Bryce Dessner, and also then Adman's Rostand's original verse, like how, how do they all relate together in your mind? Well, um, obviously I started with the Rostand. I read every extant translation and adaptation there is, and I saw the films, uh, of course, the Jose Farrar and the Gerard de Perdue and the Steve Martin version. Um, and there's also a really beautiful silent one um, that's absolutely extraordinary. Um, so I started there and I knew that I wanted it to be a Cyrano without a false nose. Um, I felt like there's a conspiracy in performance in the theater when an actor puts on a false nose where the audience knows that the nose is false so you can laugh at it easily and willingly for three hours because it's it's all fake and uh i i was wanted Cyrano to the character to never say what it is that he finds unlovable about himself to just kind of remove that layer of artifice from the piece and i hopefully get at kind of the underbelly or the the, the thing that obviously is so relatable people have been loving this play for so long um, and i wanted to try to keep the humor but to just make it a little more um uh natural i guess naturalistic a little less kind of high style um which is a, a real balance because he says you know i could kill 100 men but <laughs> so so you know it's like a, a delicate balance um but when i was doing the adaptation originally i just listened to um i had about three hours of music that aaron and bryce desner wrote and i just listened to the tracks over and over and over again. And the language necessarily became really, really spare because I wanted the piece to be through composed and I wanted the music to be the heartbeat of the piece and to allow the kind of richness of their sound to um, to, to replace some of the, the language. And uh, they, I mean, Aaron, Aaron and Bryce write very different 
music, although they collaborate really intimately um, as twins. But but um, Aaron's sound is very modern, whereas Bryce's is sometimes more Baroque. I mean, just in, I'm only speaking about for the Cyrano. And uh, because of that modern sound, the language became more modern in a way. It became really, really spare. And then Matt Berninger and uh, Corinne Besser's lyrics became the poetry in the piece. So I kind of cut the big nose speech, um, cut the ballad uh, where, you know, um, at the end of the refrain, I draw blood, which is when he fights Valver, And I replaced them with with songs. And I wanted it to feel, it wasn't ever meant to be a traditional musical theater piece. It was meant to be kind of a play with songs um, that was through composed um, ideally, or, you know, vainly like a completely new kind of theatrical piece. Um, and so I wanted the I wanted it to feel like within this kind of modern, stripped down, spare language, I wanted it to feel natural that they would move into song. So I had to um, kind of guide the words up into the songs in a different way than I guess you would normally um, in a musical theater piece. Uh, does that answer your question? Absolutely, <laughs> and that's fascinating. And it's brought up two different things I wanna ask you. You were talking about, you know, taking away the nose, really focusing on that emotion of feeling like you're not worthy of love. Yeah. And it's interesting to me because I feel uh, so much of the adaptations, the conversations around Serrano de Bergerac, um, it's, it's on this scale of like comedy to, to tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> and I never really know where the original play sits. I mean, I feel like your adaptation, as you said, does push it far more into the, the romantic tragedy side, but where yeah. do you think the actual play sits? Well, I think the play, the play itself is, um, you know, high style, swashbuckling, comic, romantic. Uh, I think it is tragic, but I think that it's, um, it's really about uh, panache and style and um, sword fighting. And, you know, he was, he wrote it in 1897, but said it in 1640, because he was trying to harken back to when you know the creation of versailles and the creation of paris fashion and this kind of beautiful um he was i think romanticizing a time in france and wanting to create this iconic french hero who um would be all the things at once uh so i think that when i think of the original piece i really think of that kind of elevated style more than anything else this kind of larger than life um character. And I, I mean, I was sort of taking all of that away in a way and trying to just look at that, the core of that story, which I mean, you know, is also in Love's Postman, right? I mean, it's like, um, you've got <laughs> mail, right? Those, um, the same sort of idea. Yeah. And, and talking about, you know, stripping everything away, uh, it's interesting to me that your original production had uh, like non-specific period set yeah. and costumes, all quite minical, minimal. Um, but then, you know, this adaptation is a Joe Wright movie. So it's costumes, yeah. costumes, costumes, production, yeah. gorgeous, beautiful. Um, and I, I wonder, did that affect your work and what you were putting into the script, that sort of switch? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I wanted it to be modern, um, although I did want it to be a kind of, I, I sort of took it out of France, but I kept the names and I wanted it, the, it's the period to be, you know, kind of theatrical that you, you couldn't really put your finger on when it was, but I wanted it to feel modern. Um, 
And actually Haley was pregnant when we did it the first time, which then got rid of the corsets, but we, we were intending to do corsets for Roxanne <laughs> originally. Um, but yes, Joe um, had a much more kind of Baroque look and feel in mind, although he is also kind of timeless. It's 1600 a bit, but not super specific. Um, and I love the way Massimo's costumes um, float a little bit. Like they're not, they're, they don't have all of the kind of rickrack that they would have if it was um, detail specific. They, they're much more kind of elevated fashion to me um, in a really beautiful way. Um, but Joe, you know, he wanted like the, the first act, which is the act that takes place in the theater, I had made incredibly minimal and cut way, 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 way down. It was actually the shortest act when we did it on stage, um, just trying to introduce the main characters. But I was pushing hard to get to the love triangle, which was my focus. And Joe wanted that back, like back to the original Rustand, but also to kind of meet all of the echelon of society and understand class. And so it, that was a huge task um, uh, that was a complete change from my stage play. But then he wanted it to move towards the stage play so that when we get to act five, which is in the convent, it really is almost identical to what it was on stage. The same dialogue, the same kind of, they, they sat on a bench on, in the play. Um, but he wanted to start really, really big and then and then narrow the focus down. Yeah, that's so interesting that you mentioned class because I feel like that must be the one of the challenges of adaptation is to take something that is so hyper specific to the period. And I feel like the play has so many references to things that I don't, oh, yes. I don't understand. Yes, yes. <laughs> but so yeah, have like a sense of it, but still make it universal for the audience. Yes. And of course, also, you know, I think you think of class completely differently here in the UK than we do in America. Mm. It's a completely different conversation. Um, so that was also interesting in working with Joe, because there are like true kind of cultural differences, or things that we see differently or encounter differently. So there and then, uh, you know, Rostan being French, that was also a difference. So we were sort of navigating all of those different things at the same time. Yeah. And, and I guess I, I kind of want to end with a more general look at the relationship between theater and film. I mean, first off, I, you've kind of touched on this already, but I, I'm always fascinated in, in the idea of the, the sort of self-contained reality of theater because you have one stage, yeah. you know, you can swap out the sets, yeah. but it's one stage and you have to contain everything within that versus the expansiveness of film where really yeah. anything is possible, but that also can be a limitation in a weird way. Yeah, um, I mean, it was really wonderful to, and it, it was a, like a, um, a a bit of mental gymnastics to think like they don't have to be in the theater to have this conversation. They could be anywhere in the world. They could be walking down the street. They could be in a cafe. They could be, you know. And it was so exciting to kind of release all of that and um, to dream of seeing the war in a in a really big way um, and the landscape and all of that that was that was really exciting um, and I think that the songs lend themselves to the film version almost more successfully than they do to the stage version because they're such windows into the character's interior life um, and that was also really exciting cinematically like for instance in every letter you can see the whole history history of their courtship within the, the one song. And we struggled and struggled with how to convey that on stage. And everything just seemed so, you know, sort of cheesy because it's such an interior song. But at the same time, you're telling the story of all of these letters. And I think 
Joe was able to do that um, really well because of the medium. You know, it's 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 so it's it's beautiful to be able to to work in that way. Um, it was very exciting to watch. Yeah, and I, I guess so. My final question, I, I'm another thing I'm very interested in is the relationship between the two industries. And sometimes, I guess I, I sense a little bit of tension between theater and film because you know there's a difference in what gets the most attention, the most money, like where actors get drawn towards. And I wondered, you know, with a film like Cyrano, perhaps, like, what do you, do you think there is an ability to, to reconcile these two art forms so that they can have like a really productive mutual relationship? Um, well, I hope so. I mean, I often feel um, offended is too strong, but, but maybe that's right. Uh, for the way that I see theater depicted in film. I mean, I've spent 20 years working in theater. I, I love the theater. Um, and I have to say that this film absolutely would not exist without the work of the actors, the stage actors who, you know, lent their time and their craft and their talent to the two productions that we did, from which I learned a tremendous amount in order to create the screenplay, you know? So there, there, I guess if there's a tension, it's sort of like that. Um, but I, when I, when I go to work on other plays, whenever I'm casting, I always kind of find that I'm drawn to the actors who've worked in film. Um, I, I don't know why that is, but there's something about, uh, being forced to do nothing by the camera um by the kind of in intimacy of it and the closeness of it that that is that i find so moving and 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 beautiful um in in actors work um and when i was originally adapting this Cyrano, ironically because i had absolutely no idea that it would become a film but i thought of it cinematically um like i you know we we, we letterboxed the set with you know black um, and I was thinking of it as through composed, like a movie score. And I was paring down the whole piece from a cast of 40 to a cast of 10 in an effort to get at that intimacy that I think is achieved so easily in, in film with a close up. Um, and originally I had imagined staging it in the round with the audience on either side, super, super close. Um, and we just weren't able to do it with the theaters we were in, but I still think that that, that, I mean, that's what, that's the idea that was in my mind when I was doing it, which I think is partly what Joe saw um, that you know enabled him to to imagine it as a film. Um, so there, I, I don't I don't know what the answer to your question is, but I am very <laughs> interested in um, the relationship between the two medium, and I feel very lucky that I was able to um, take take one and move it to the other. I feel really grateful for that chance. Yeah, and I can't wait to revisit the fil this film. I'm only sad that, well, I hope I, I get to see this on the stage as well. Hopefully it gets um, put on again because I'd really love to see it. I would uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Okay, so Cyrano, Cyrano, Cyrano. <laughs> <laughs> do we have, do we have, does everyone have like their Cyrano? The one that is like, is it Steve Martin or Roxanne. Or the song by the police, which I think is about a different Roxanne. No, I know. She's a sex worker in that song. But I don't think this Roxanne puts on a red light. <laughs> no, she does not. She does no, put she... on she does she does get given a red dress though. So 
yes yeah. and then she writes a lot of letters yeah, yeah. but like what's but yeah Roxanne. what's our what's our uh, familiar familiarity with this play and with brilliant uh with uh previous versions of it I think mine is Roxanne, Steve Martin. We are a still Steve Martin household uh, with the ridiculous nose. And is it Roxette, the song that they did the song for it? It must have been love, but it's over is that now. that movie? Oh. I feel like it was like the song for that movie. I'm going to double check this while Amon <laughs> tells you about his relationship. Yeah, Amon, what's your uh, I have no relationship with Cerno. Sorry right. to be <laughs> So this is your first. Okay, well, let's come to you then first. So what yeah. was your your initial impression of this story? Uh, because there's a very long debate about whether Cyrano, and we talk about this in the interview, whether Cyrano de Bergerac is like a comedy or a tragedy or where in between those two extremes it sits. Uh, what was your impression of this adaptation? That's interesting. I would veer that I would veer more towards the tragedy aspect of it. At least I think this uh, adaptation does. I didn't find that there's the odd hint of comedy, um, but this wasn't like a, a laugh riot or anything like that. Um, but I really, really uh, enjoyed this the story. Um, I'm a bit of a hopeless romantic at heart. So I was kind of swept up in the love triangle of it all. And I think uh, that worked really, really well. Uh, I love Peter Dinklage's performance. I think everyone had uh, great chemistry. Kelvin Harrison Jr. is someone who I've uh, really liked watching on screen for a while now. Um, and it's really good that after sort of heavy roles in uh, the likes of Loose and Waves, he's playing sort of lighter characters. Um, I think of uh, how we've all enjoyed his performance in The High Note, where he starred opposite Dakota Johnson as his love interest, as her love interest, rather. And um, yeah, I thought he and Haley Bennett were great uh, in this film. I really enjoyed it. Just to confirm, it was not in Roxanne. Actually, that Roxette son was famously in Pretty Woman, which I believe was out the same year. So, yeah, see. there we okay. go. Okay, it's good to clear yeah. up. Uh, still, <laughs> still, it bangs. It's still a great movie banger. <laughs> I mean... It is interesting because I do think this film, it does underplay a little bit of the wit of the original play because, like, that's a big thing of who Cyrano is in in that story is he has this great mind and there's so many backs and forths of him just, like... You see it a little in the beginning of the movie. There's He's at a theatre and he's kind of having a bit of a, like, a... I guess it's like a rap battle <laughs> with the guy. <laughs> <laughs> the play has a lot more of that sort of uh cleverness to it which i think is downplayed here in favor though of the tragedy which i think most adaptations certainly like the steve martin one changes the adapt the ending even um does tend to they tend to underplay the tragedy so it's kind of a nice balance i mean hannah as a as a joe wright scholar <laughs> of sorts <laughs> i wondered yes. like if you could comment about like his style and what he as a director brings to this yeah i think he really brings like this really kinetic energy like it feels like i don't know like um, a gust of wind so often the way it kind of, the way the camera swings and the way the kind of, I don't know, they're always, everything feels like it's in motion, like things are happening and changing. And it kind of feels, I don't know, kind of, I think that's the break, that's what he's so good about with like classic 
adaptations. You know, he's done Pride and Prejudice. You know, he's done, not that it's a classic, but Atonement, obviously, is period set. Um, Anna Karenina. Um, oh, he did Darkest Hour, didn't he? <laughs> anyway, he's no stranger to a period film, and I think he manages manages to just in the in the direction and um and in in the framing and kind of the whole I suppose visual element of it that it it feels very contemporary. Um, you should mention that uh, uh, Clarice said that Hannah is a Joe Wright scholar because of uh, Hannah's. Uh, <laughs> historical paper what, what how, how how would you describe well <laughs> i wrote when i was at university of nottingham uh i did a, a module called dramatic discourse and i did an essay on politeness theory in pride and prejudice where i compared the scene where darcy declares his love to elizabeth in the rain and it doesn't go well and then later um when they're at pemberley and she realizes that she loves him it's all like oh um, yes, thank you. I realised that you helped me out and now I love you. <laughs> um, I realised that you're rich. So yes. Now I've decided that I do love you. Yes. <laughs> I've met you your know. sister. Oh. <laughs> anyway. Um, but Where can we read this masterful text? I, I can't even read it. <laughs> I, it's probably on like an old laptop somewhere. I kind of regret not backing it up. But no. I, funnily enough, though, this is the second time I've mentioned this to someone involved with that. When I interviewed Matthew McFadden a few years ago for Succession for Series 1 uh, in person, I was like, oh, I he was like, oh, I wish I could have read it. And it's, you know, I was like... I don't think you would. I, I feel like <laughs> I feel like it's a very like thinking about like the stuff. I think I found like an old essay. I'm not saying I was. I mean, I got a two one guys, so I'm not too bad. But like, um, you know, you kind of like, oh, I think I'm a far better right than I was when I was 20 oh, years yeah. old. You know. Uh, anyway, so I mentioned it to him in the interview on Empire podcast. If you should go listen to it, you can. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I'm a scholar, but I certainly really uh, like the way that Joe Wright uh, deals with classic literature. And I think, yeah, I think I think one of its strengths is that uh, even though it's very traditional in the look and just like beautiful, actually, I don't. I, I mean, costumes. Um, production design I mean mm. interestingly enough they had like this town pretty much to themselves because I think they shot it during the pandemic um and you know it's just it, it kind of in a way that's doing so much work as well it kind of it saves them because they're not having to reinforce that this is set there and it feels like it's very much uh set in that time and, and there's a weird like quality to it where it's like it looks hyper real like it's quite it, obviously we know it's like a not really a soundstage I mean it might probably have a few, few bits of but like it just looks so viscerally real, hyper real that you're kind of like is this a set <laughs> no this is what <laughs> you know untouched amazing places still exist in the world mm. and you can kind of see that in the costume design like the I think it was Jacqueline Durand who did the uh Roxanne's dresses which are a very good example of take it it's like mostly historical but like she's done little things here and there to to give it a little bit a little bit of a modern edge you mean like um, in mary queen of scots where they made the dresses out of denim which didn't exist that, no that was the favorite that favorite the, that's it yeah yeah no I mean, no that, in mary that, queen of scots oh, did they, they also did it. it they oh. also did it okay yeah. well the favorite got there first <laughs> <laughs> 
Maybe, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but there's a funny um, thing. There's those TV shows. I don't know if you've seen them, uh, but like the CW, like Tudor young adult before it was like Dickinson and whatever <laughs> cat was that one with um Elle Fanning Catherine the Great but mm. they used to have the, they had these CW shows where it's about Mary Queen of like Queen of Scots when she was married to the Dauphinois of France uh, and it's like set in France but like uh all of their costumes is like this is too well modern like as <laughs> if they had this kind of like these styles back then but there we go Sorry, I digress. You digressing? No. <laughs> Segway. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely its own art, and I like what. Um, yeah, I really like the production design in there because it's like historical with like a little bit of that, a little of the modern flair in it. But look, we got to talk about. Oh, do we talk about the music or the performances? Let's do performances first. No, let's do music because you're Amon, you are the music man. Um, he not, is that's the not a music reference man. to but yeah. <laughs> not a reference to the away. musical. <laughs> but yeah, songs by the people in the national. Oh yeah. It's very nationally, isn't it? <laughs> I know, and yeah. I didn't know it was them. And the whole way through the movie I was like Gosh, this really sounds like the National. This is weird. Oh my god, my dad's obsessed kind of like, with the National. Literally, is the National okay? <laughs> <laughs> my dad's obsessed. They went. He went to. He went to see like we went to see Bruce Springsteen concert once, and National support it. Now he's like proper on a National flex. I can't wait for my dad Phil to go watch this movie. He's gonna I probably already the have the soundtrack. <laughs> Miss November. Mm. That song's a bop. I honestly cannot remember any of the songs though. <laughs> I saw this again. I saw this so long ago that I can't remember any of the the numbers. Yeah, this is a similar thing for me. I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. There's some good stuff there. Like I really like the number um, that is all the soldiers yes. uh, singing the song. Yes, that's the good. That's one. that's really really that's good. Beautiful. That made me cry. Um, and I think you know, as you mentioned, Kelvin Harrison Jr. He's always had the vocals. Look at what he did in the high note. Um, he's really good. And I think Hilly Bennett is also really strong when it comes to the vocals. Peter Dinklage is not as strong, but he makes up for it uh, by giving some of his all to it. And you can feel his character and the vulnerability uh, and the hurt and the heart through his character in the performance. So all of that works really, really well. I liked um, Ben Mendelsohn's villain song as well. <laughs> that was good. Peter Dinklage sounds like Matt Berenger from of the National. <laughs> it's a very good impression of the guy who normally sings the songs. So I feel like he should I get also a point think for that. Rock is a far easier like rock song. Uh, rock singing is 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 far more um, sympathetic to <laughs> to not the strongest voices. Like you can you can get away with not having the strongest voice because there's like a growl to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't need to be ha- like as harmonious as as or melodic as say Calvin would would be, and I think that works. Although there's some moments where it did remind me of Russell Crowe in Les Mis, <laughs> and and this is not a negative because I actually feel like Russell Crowe got a very hard time for for that, and I just feel like why are people mad at it? like leave him alone, leave him alone. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, Clarice, ever since you said rap battle earlier, I just keep thinking in my mind, Cyrano versus B-Rabbit, how would that go down? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't, 
I can't, I don't know what else to call it. It's like, you know, it's like a rap battle via Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it is, isn't it? It's like Lin-Manuel, not, I don't think it's first, but like, it's kind of weird that like now, just now it's the norm. Anyone's going to do. And Hannah, I mean, yeah, we talked a little bit about Peter Dinklage, but tell me more about this performance I thought, yeah I thought it was fantastic it's so funny because I think with Serrano the character the idea I mean his nose is the big thing right and it's mm-hmm. like and you kind of think I don't know how do you do that nowadays because I feel or even use that as a way in I mean I think with, with what's funny about the Steve Martin one is that they really made it <laughs> prominent a very weird nose it's like oh right okay understandable like mm-hmm. how do you do it? i mean i'd love to see what james mcavoy does with um because obviously he's doing it on um in the west end at the moment but i think there is something i think that it's actually just an inspired i'm so glad that uh he did a little read through with his wife erica schmidt <laughs> uh, when she was when she was working it out because it is such a it feels it feels real like you you not real but i think that prejudice does exist um if you are a small person if you if and so there's an authenticity to that performance that can't you can't kind of say oh well that you know his nose isn't that bad it's like no this is a very real thing so I think he Mm -hmm. brings yeah I think you there's a sadness there's a real tragedy and I think you know we got hints I I think you know, he's always been an amazing dramatic actor, Peter Dinklage. Um, his ability to kind of, I, I don't know, I think he's got, the way he can deliver emotion without actually saying just with a look, there's mm-hmm. a longing, there's a real longing in the way he looks that really makes you just endear to him so much. Um, that yeah. scene where early on, where uh, he meets uh, Roxanne and he thinks that Roxanne's going to yeah. tell him that uh, she's been pining over him when, it, in fact, he's, she's been pining over another person. The look he has in that moment is fantastic, I think. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Um, and it's just just a very tender, tender performance. But, you know, as you mentioned, like, he's also just a very... I kind of... I wish there was a bit more humour in it, though. I think I think he had give, given a bit more humour, like you said... Clarice um that opening bit was quite fun and like oh sparky and then it kind of quickly went back to the very like sad boy pining (laughs) over it and I think after a while you kind of feel like oh come on man like (laughs) like don't totally let your I feel like I don't totally be a I don't know a bit of a wimp about it obviously things progress but it just felt sometimes it felt like I don't think this is him. I think just maybe the script made it just a little bit too wimpish. <laughs> there's there's a little bit of wit when he sort of takes on ten men at once. Oh. Um, the swashbuckling okay. is good. Great fight scene. That was a really yeah. well executed and delivered fight scene. One shot, right? It was so amazing how they. I don't want to give it away, but that's actually probably. See, this one's great because I haven't seen it in months. But the minute you say this, I'm like, oh my god, yes, <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. So, um, but yeah, I think it was good. And Haley Bennett. I think it's. I think ultimately, just as a play, my I suppose my my feminist like sensibilities finds it just a bit frustrating in a way that like 
I don't know, this is a story as a whole. Sometimes you're like, does it hold up? And, you know, is she that much of a... Because, you know, it's trying to say that she's not like this this beautiful person, blah, 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 who kind of... But it does feel like there's not... There's little there, really, I think, as a character that really... um, The idea that that she's kind of... If she had feelings for him, why wouldn't she just go for it? That's what I mean, like... And it just feels a bit kind of this... We're going around the bush just to get to a point where it's like, well, if you thought that, why we, but why did you waste your time over it? Kind of seems like that characterization as a woman is actually a bit too dimensional. I don't know, two dimensional. And I just think there's only so much you can really do with that character. I don't know. What do you think, Clarice? I think what I really liked about just the way this was constructed, yeah, with the casting of Peter Dinklage of getting rid of the nose, is that it comes back to what is like the emotional core of the tragedy that it's not Cyrano's appearance that kept him and Roxanne apart. It was his pride because he was so deluded. He was so, and you know, not really his fault because partially societal uh, forces being placed upon him, but he was so convinced that she could never, ever possibly love him that that is ultimately Cyrano's downfall. So I think... I think that's the thing. It, it does take a little bit of the agency away from her, but we're seeing, I think we're seeing it through much, so much through his perspective. Yeah. Um, and I think she is an intelligent and uh, a loving and a quite like emancipated woman uh, within this movie. I think even within the play a little, like, you know, but yeah, we're seeing it through his eyes of just being like, no, that could never be, that could never be. And like, that's, that's the tragedy of it, is that he, he just has convinced himself that it could but never But they're happen. such good friends, she can't recognise. <laughs> but it, right. do you get do what I mean? mean? I know we have to allow some artistic licence there, but I think maybe yeah. that's what... But it's because he's so convinced himself right that she that she she goes well he's not interested in me at all like he's you know because he has like complete he's the one who's done the active role of severing that that love yeah if that makes sense that's what i like about it i like that side i I know what you mean but i just yeah i don't know it's kind of like if we're adapting it to make it feel contemporary now how do we how do we you know, it could be the tragedy of both of them because because it seemed, I don't know, True. it's kind of like she likes a pretty like, face. It's like, that's what like she Romeo seems... like Romeo and Juliet. You're just a bit like, Juliet could have held you know, I think that's what like it is. five minutes. Yeah, or like, or, or like Othello, like, you know, with Desdemona. It's like, sometimes they're just, not that I'm victim-blaming mean, Desdemona for getting her own murder, like, but like, there is something, I suppose, so often when we're adapting classic texts is, and the same with like Lady Macbeth as well, with, with, with what we come through. So often, or if we're going to make them now, how can we incorporate something? I'm not saying we have to correct it, but there there should be, I feel like if we're going to, I don't know, if we can change, tweak certain things, why don't we try and tweak it to actually make it, because um, again, it's adaptation. The original text still exists. It doesn't have to be a carbon copy of what we're seeing. And I suppose mine, yeah, I, I kind of feel like, could we have gone a bit further to give her some agency beyond, well, if he wasn't so prideful, 
I would have fallen in love, known straight away that I was in love with him. Um, or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like some, I don't know, sorry. I know what you mean. Like, in English class, I wrote, I wrote a play for Rosaline because I thought, let's give this woman a voice. So mm. <laughs> I'm really trying you know, to remember what I'm I was you. doing when you guys were writing all these essays now. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, Rosaline needs a spinoff about how she, this Romeo guy's just fucking weird. <laughs> that was Didn't the they try speech. to do that though? Didn't they try and do that on like the CW, again, CW, the place for oh. more like young adult adaptations. But like, but yeah, I think, I think so often classic texts, women are just not <laughs> presented and yeah, we, what can we limit. do now to make them feel like modern I think you know they've done, they're doing it with Lady Macbeth as a character to make her less this kind of like womanly avatar of evil how do we make Roxanne more than just a kind of like um, I don't know a, an active participant in her own romance someone who is you know for someone who doesn't care about appearance but spends her whole time fawning over the most beautiful guy that she sees and like well, willfully believe that she's he's writing these you know writing to her because he's so do you know what I mean it's kind of like it's vanity isn't it like she's a kind of a vain individual as much as so anyway but like Hayley does a lovely job was <laughs> <laughs> that like a compliment sandwich but I, I have to say yeah, I have to say Ben Mendelssohn he's like he's so good I love him in this I love his he's always um, good and the fact they dress him in pants, those that well, it's not even it's like a millennial pink, like brocade, like a suit. It looks looks real good. I just love, love that how how ridiculous like the makeup looks ridiculous. And I love that they make these people look ridiculous. Like it's just <laughs> the idea that people would just go like that, that was like a, a marker did. of wealth yeah. and status. <laughs> looking like an realistic. absolute clown. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, same today, same today. <laughs> Look at how Kanye West and, and Julia Fox have been dressing. <laughs> same thing, same thing. Uncut jams. Uncut jams. <laughs> but that brings us to screen, stream, or skip. Amon, what's your judgment? I'm going to say screen. I really enjoyed this. Hannah. Yeah, screen. Go on. I love a musical. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm also screen because I just, I love a Joe Wright period. Yeah. Fancy schmancy romance. Please make more. Stop making, don't make the darkest hour on Woman in the Window. Just make the, these. <laughs> I just, Please. I'm kind of sad that we, we haven't, that Peter Dinklage isn't in, isn't in the awards conversation. That's what I'm quite sad about. Because, is yeah. it because of the release thing? Because I think if it had been released in a, in a, I don't know, in a better way. Maybe it's next time, but like, I think he's kind of, he's fought, gone between the lines now, and I don't think he's going to get attention. But it is really a fantastic performance from Peter Dinklage. I agree. I yeah, he's been one of my favorites. So from the Duke de Guiche to the Duke of Wellington. Goya's famous portrait stolen from the National Gallery of London in 1961 by the subject of our next film, The Duke. Will the defendant please stand? Kempton Bunton, you were charged that on the 21st of March 1961, you stole from the National Gallery a priceless portrait of the Duke of Wellington by Francisco Jose de Goya. Not very good, is it?
The fuck on the tine is all mine, all mine. The fuck on the tine is all mine. There you go. Woo! Yay. <laughs> Lindisfarne. Nay. Farne Lindisfarne? That's who they are, 1971. Uh, that song does not appear in The Duke, but it uh, is a, the Tyne River does. So there we go. In 1961, a 60-year-old taxi driver steals... Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington from the National Gallery in London. He sends ransom notes saying that he will return the painting if the government invests more in care for the elderly as well as TV license. It's a really, it's a kind of very weird, like <laughs> weird story based on real life. And it was at the time where like everyone who had to have, anyone who had a TV had to pay a license fee and uh i mean obviously that's now but this is before people over 75 got free tv license and not stuff. anymore i would add that has been taken away since 2020 right wow because this what Fuck the tories yeah no well yeah there we go yeah fucking tories uh it's got a very this film has got a very fuck the tories attitude which we appreciate um so this is directed by Roger Michel, his last film before his death last year, unfortunately. Um, the screenplay is by Richard Bean and Clive Coleman. And Jim Broadman play, plays the lead uh, opposite Helen Mirren. He plays his wife. Uh, Finn Whitehead is their, is their son. Jai. Uh, Jai man. Sorry, I'm going to stop. Uh, <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> I will not. I will not be stopped. Anna Maxwell Martin uh, and Matthew Good. Popping up in there, popping up in a late stage arrival. He loves to turn up an hour into a movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's never there at the beginning of the movies that he's in. He he's, always he, like, he, not. It's like there'll be a tense moment and the, the doors like burst open and Matthew Good just comes in. <laughs> he's got a champagne bottle. He says, the party's here. <laughs> Sorry to be tired. He, he would have been a good Bond, I think, Matthew Good. Oh, yeah. A great Bond. Um, okay, so um, I suppose uh, let's go in. I mean, I suppose one thing I really enjoy about uh, this film is uh, northern representation. Uh, I feel like it's, it's still very sparse uh, in cinemas. Um, and so how do you think, and, and there's a lot of very thick Geordie accents in here. I says, how do you, how do you think, I don't know, have you guys been to Newcastle? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> like, I haven't been past the M25. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose for you, like, how, how do you think it captured maybe 1960s Britain? Kind of like, did it feel like, Jim Broadbent, Helen Mirren, and all the kind of cast, it, did it feel quite authentic to you? Or you kind of, I don't know, I think sometimes when you see stuff, you're kind of like, that is a terrible accent. I certainly know when people do Yorkshire ones. But I suppose, Clarice, did, you, did it feel uh, like that world had kind of come to life? Did you feel transported back? Yeah, I can't, I have to say, I'm not, I'm not great with guessing the accuracy of a lot of UK accents. To me, the accents were very good. Uh, please tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what struck me most is that, like, as a director, um, Roger Michel, like, he, he was always so good at giving space to actors. And I feel like, especially Helen Mirren in this like everyone's kind of relaxes into their roles and it's really nice it's like some of the the Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren some of their best work that I've seen in a while because they're not like 
nothing feels forced they just feel so lived mm -hmm. in those roles and i believe mm -hmm. that this couple have been married for years uh and they have that sort of you know i'm quite irritated by you but i actually am wildly in love with you at the same time kind of relationship that works really beautifully and i i think it captures like that household really well and and i like the scene of, of when the tv licenses come in to demand you know, like where you see your tv license fee and um uh, and Kempton Bunsen says, look, I've like fiddled with the TV so I can't get the BBC so I don't have to pay my license fee. And it becomes this like, the way that scene is directed is so beautifully done. It becomes this like, this massive like standoff. <laughs> and suddenly a journalist walks in and the journalist is there and he's taking notes and it like, the scene just escalates really slowly, but um, really naturally and there's a subtlety to it and i think i think that describes like the whole movie there is a subtlety to it but it's intricate and it's clever at the same time mm -hmm. yeah i definitely felt like helen mirian i, I believe she lived in that house <laughs> <laughs> like she's just the way that just the command she has of everything like the way she cuts, gets things ready, the way she's like kind of setting the table, all these little bits and pieces where it's like, oh no, you're really owning it. And like, you know, I think the opening shot, I think as well, like just, I think such a little shot of like, she's she's a cleaner and she's doing, Anna Maxwell Martin is like the wife of a counsellor who she cleans the house off. And the first time we see her character is, you see her hands and you see how cracked and broken they are. And it's like, that is, the, in a way, that's a symbol of working class. That's like, she, she, she you know, and I think back to like in the Heights where that scene where she's talking about how her mother wore gloves because she was a cleaner to have that sort of dignity. And I think like there is a dignity in the working class in the sense of, you know, she's a pride, prideful woman. You know, she's get she's she's out there. She's every day. She's at break of dawn. She's just being that that's that that kind of matriarch who is rolling her sleeves up, just getting on with it and trying not to. You know, she had pride in herself, and I suppose in a way, it's it's. I think it really captures that the kind of as you said, they love each other, but there's also a frustration there that she's this hardworking woman and her partner, for however you know funny and charming he can be. He's also just not pulling his weight in this household. And um, Mon, how do you think that kind of, as much as this is kind of a story about, you know, him being this kind of socialist hero, kind of getting, getting one back at the man, how do you think it kind of taught, I suppose, in a way, sets him up as, you know, sort of heroic protagonist, but also like recognises that the dude is just a bit of a drain <laughs> as well? Yeah, no, they find a really nice balance between those things and also the other sort of major thread of the movie, which is grief. This is a family and a marriage that has gone through hard times because of a loss of a child. And there is that thread that goes all the way through the movie. Uh, and it's really heartfelt and really well done, especially on Helen Mirren's character's part and how she progresses to not healing but the beginnings of healing and trying to persevere uh in spite of it and i that that was where the real meat of the movie lied for me uh like it has the the caper elements uh which are very quickly dealt with because the film was more about 
will they be discovered? What will happen if and when they dis- they're discovered? Um, but the the grief aspect of the film is what really touched me. Mm. How do you, I suppose, it's, it's so interesting, this, because there's a lot of things going on at once. <laughs> like, yeah. Kempton is trying to get his work published at the BBC. He's writing plays. Then we've got the kind of secondary storyline with um, uh, with the sun, kind of like, mm. and the sun's got their own thing. Also, can I just give a shout out to the kind of, I love how uh, there's the character, there's the eldest son's kind of girlfriend of the separated woman. It's like, it's called a southerner, but she's clearly from Yorkshire. <laughs> and that's like, that's <laughs> so classic of like, in Newcastle, that's not considered northern. Anything below that, you're a southerner. <laughs> so I love that little bit. But I suppose, how do you think, Clarice, how do you think it kind of balanced, um, I suppose, all of these different things? Because there's a, there, you know, there's the heist, there's the kind of TV licensing, there's, you know, trying to get on the BBC, there's the criminality with the, the, the sun, there's the grief, you know, him trying to get a job, quite a lot going on. Yeah, I think that's my my criticism of this film is I think the script, which was by Clive Coleman and Richard Bean, um, it's yeah, it's it's sort of trying to cover too much and it's trying to simplify everything. So like I sort of didn't like this idea of using grief as like the psychological uh, motivator for everything that Kempton Bunton is doing. It's like, oh, you know, he's doing all this socialism because he's sad, you know. <laughs> it's it's a little too simplistic, I think. You could see that as well in the political aspect of the film. Like, there's a scene where he is, like, working in a factory of some sort and they introduce a character who is from Pakistan and like the manager's being racist and then Campton steps in and he's like no yeah (laughs) and it it feels like okay gosh you've written that entire scene just to show us the audience what a great guy Campton Bunton was when I feel like I would have rather have spent this movie like really getting into like the actual like socialism of his political stances we it's a real surface level expression of him just you know just going oh that you know tv licenses should be free for the pensioners it's like okay but why but like and where and you know what was he risking by doing that and i there's i feel like there's so much more you could explore versus this idea of just building up the like the likable hero that this film is presenting yeah it doesn't interrogate i feel like enough of like why he cannot keep a job <laughs> because that's one thing you know it's you know he's supposed to be the champion of the working class but he never worked he like barely could work because he's works. so nice he yeah doing... it's like he's so affable and um, i think what you yeah totally on that using racism as a plot device to prove that a character your character is also a white savior is just not the one for me Amon, like how do you feel about i suppose some of the kind of yeah, I also thought it was weird with the way Anna Maxwell Martin was kind of shoehorned in a lot for no particular reason at all. Oh, it was like the I in my review I did it's the hashtag not all poshos. So yeah, like, but yeah. okay, but mm-hmm. this you know that some of the posh people were nice and sympathetic to him. It's like I feel like that's not necessary for this movie. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you feel about the kind of I suppose the um, all. <laughs> All Lives Matters aspect of this, <laughs> of this film. Yeah, I'm in two minds about it because on the one hand, I agree with what you're saying. 
on the other hand, there were elements of uh, what Jim Broadbent's character was saying that did land for me. And I would not be, it's not a lie for me to say that some of the social uh, solidarity and community and all those messages, some of that that did land for me. The final few minutes or so, especially crowd pleasing in that regard. Um, and part of me did enjoy that, but I fully agree um, with the whole not all uh, postures thing that you were saying earlier. Uh, that inclusion felt very unnecessary, as did the whole um, white savior thing you mentioned earlier as well, using that as like a narrative shortcut to uh, explain why Jim Paul's character is the way he is. I just think it was you. That there are other ways you could have accomplished that same goal yeah. without it being so white savory. And I'm really opposed to use the use of the p word, where it's in that sort of isolation. Where it reminds me of in um, uh, in Bohemian Rhapsody, and they used that they used the p word several times, and never really got into like the issues of racism that um, Freddie Mercury faced. And I find it just just nauseating when I hear it. Um, um, so anyone who is <laughs> writing films who <laughs> just please, like, I, I only think racial racial slurs should be used in films if it's, like, done in a way that makes sense or, or can be, I don't know, isn't just throwaway. I don't like the throwaway usage of it, you know? I mean, I think East is East has probably got the best one, like, I'm not the best way to do it, but, like, there's, that's how you use racial, I think that's the way you can use the racial slurs, especially the P word, because I do think it's not like the N word where it's become part of, like, the vernacular for a certain group of people, you know what I mean? That's allowed, but, yeah, that's my final thoughts on that. All in all, though, let's let's go to our screen, stream, or skip. Clarice, what do you think? I'm veering towards a stream, I think, unless you're a, like a huge Helen Mirren fan. Amon? Hmm, this is a tricky one. Um, I'm going to say uh, screen, because I did really enjoy this. We haven't spoken much about Jim Broadbent, but he is extremely well cast in this film as like an oddball with a good heart. Um, I thought his performance was really, really good uh, right there every step of the way with Helen Mirren. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going I'm to say screen. It's so funny. I think Jim Broadbent has got those eyes that no matter what role he plays, he always look a bit, mm. is he okay? <laughs> I also, on, on Jim Broadbent, I did chuckle because Hot Fuzz is celebrating his 15th, unit, 15th anniversary uh, recently. And Jim Broadbent is obviously in Hot Fuzz in this movie. I'm not sure if you guys caught it. But he says, for the greater good, which did make me laugh. Hee <laughs> hee. Uh, I'm going to say uh, stream. I think this is a very good Sunday afternoon movie <laughs> to watch uh, with a cup of tea. <laughs> okay, so what from one working class family to uh, a family of circumstance, this is La Mif. Ce foyer, il accueille plusieurs jeunes qui sont dans des situations difficiles et ce qu'on vous propose en tout cas, c'est un endroit qui est sécure.
So, Lamif is a contemporary drama set in a teenage girl's residential care home in Geneva. Through various perspectives, after an incident triggers a chain of overreactions, we see the impact of abuse and the morals and ethics of social care as these young girls come of age. Fred Bailiff's third fiction feature was developed over two years and drew on his own past experience as a street social worker. It stars Cordia Grob, Anais Audrey, Cassia da Costa, Joyce Esther, Endai Senga, and Charlie Aredi. Uh, so this film has drawn a lot of comparisons to Rocks, which I do think uh, are understandable. <laughs> but there's a lot of differences there as well. Uh, Clarice, how similar or different to Rocks do you think this film was? I didn't think of Rocks once, so I don't... <laughs> oh, interesting. I, no, I don't know. It, it feels very different to me. Rocks was... Um... Rocks I think really that's the easy thing, isn't it? Friendship, yeah. I guess because it's just like teenage girls and social worker elements. I think. Involved. I think it's anytime it's like young girls in like socially realism, social realism. It's like they'll people will always compare it to the last thing that they've seen. Right. Yeah. Wouldn't this I more have more in common with girlhood? Like. I didn't. Mm, that's a good point. I didn't even think of that. Honestly, I didn't. <laughs> I don't know. I think. Certainly not rocks because rocks, yeah, was about friendship. It's quite um, sort of a very uplifting, like hopeful movie. I think this, uh, like you can feel the docu of the docu drama. I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which I really appreciated. It's a very sober look at this subject, and um, with a lot of uh, first time actors in it, and it takes this very fragmented look at intertwining stories so you just get a little bit of a sense of why uh all of these girls are at this care home what brought them there their differing attitudes to it because i think uh you know there's there's a i guess because of like annie and shit like that there's an idea that like everybody wants to go out everybody wants to be reunited with their family whatever but some of them don't like some of them don't want to go back to their families because it's not a safe uh place physically or psychologically and they have created their own family and their own home there so i what i really appreciated is how willing this film was to get like right in and stuck into the nuance of it and to really express like we don't have to look to the biggest scandals uh surrounding uh social care and care homes across the world to understand like how fucked up the system is is like it's from the ground up it's just it's a painful painful system and it hurts so many people and i don't know if it like know the movie certainly doesn't offer any answers but i think it really gives you a it really expresses well like what the reality is mm-hmm. um hannah one of the things i really loved about this film is its structure um because it goes it gives every uh girl here and even some of the staff uh their own chapter uh to really sort of get into their lives and get into their own trauma what did you think of the the rashomon style structure of this film yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's Rashomon because that would suggest it's unreliable, the same event from different, so unreliable. But I, I would, I, I mean, isn't it more like, isn't it more like Bobby? <laughs> you know what I mean? Isn't that, that when with Lindsay Lohan where he got killed and it's all from the different perspectives of... Um, oh, the, yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> or, or, mean, or, yes. or the Michael, Ma- Matthew Vaughan film, Vantage Point. <laughs> Actually, I think, I, I think the structure 
is really good. I loved it because, you know, when you go into this, when I first started watching, I thought, oh, is it, we've got this very diverse group of girls. Is it just going to be on this girl, Audrey? Like, because it's like, and then as it goes on, you're like, oh no, this is great because we're now getting a really full, um, exhaustive um, exploration for all of these girls and how different their lives are, but how they've come together and how, yeah, like how people react to situations, how what happens after something and what why why that person might have reacted in that way and what are the kind of outcomes of that afterwards and that everyone's got their own things going on. And I think sometimes we we forget that. I think it's a really good move to say that we have a lot of things going on each of every single person has a lot of things going on that we are unaware of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, these girls, what's really clear is like these girls are like, they've shit, they've been through real hard, hard shit. And yeah, they're angry. And yeah, they maybe react with, you know, want to shout and scream at each other and get, but like, don't treat them. <laughs> like there's a reason for it. Like I thought that was really powerful. I mean, if anything, this kind of, I feel like there's a lot of like, European cinema and this cinema verite style kind of really like the Dardenne brothers when they did Rosetta I think this has a lot of common with that in the sense of like one girl just trying to like find get through and look after herself with an alcoholic mother and it's her trying you know things they do to get to jobs and it's very non-judgmental and I think that's what's really powerful about this this film is that it's it's totally non-judgmental and the only people judging you know, there's one of the kind of key things, the event, one of the events that happens is when two underage uh, residents are how how engage in, in sex and what the ramifications of that, because, you know, one is slightly older than the other, like it affects someone else who's been abused by, had been abused as a minor themselves and the kind of I suppose the the way that people handle it like in from one perspective to another perspective and then you know outsiders looking in I think it's really I thought I really like the fact that it had like this manager of this um uh of this facility and it's not like the kind of I am the I am the savior coming in all this like she's just trying to like do her job and work with this team and actually a lot of people keep on forgetting like they're not in prison this is a children's home because they haven't got anywhere else to go and I think it just really captures every aspect of it I mean it kind of if anything system crasher is a really great example Mm. as well kind of I think it's really a great way to show the kind of social realism of really what's going on at the moment and really get those insider perspectives and just as well female perspectives as well intersectional female perspectives yeah I agree um we mentioned at the top that uh Fred Bailiff uh was a social worker himself and I feel like that contributes to the authenticity of this film another thing that does that and this is a way in which this film is similar to rocks but the docu-style approach, the improvisational approach that they've taken here. How do you feel that works with the performances? Because we've got a lot of first-timers here as well, mixed among the adult cast. Clarice, how do you think on the performance level we got the authenticity of this film? Yeah, for for like 80% of it, I think it worked really beautifully because they just... It's just that thing of like they they're just living as these characters and there's there's no overthinking anything and it's really easy to believe that these people are 
are real and these are real experiences and that this could just be a, a documentary that the camera is following these events i think the only the only place where this sort of falls down is i think once you start getting towards the end because it is a drama and not a documentary mm. you can feel like fred bailiff going oh shit okay i gotta like end this movie <laughs> and i gotta pull all these threads together and it, it feels a little bit forced because you go from something so natural and so um intuitive and there's not really that much of a structure to the story it's just things are happening and people are reacting in the in the moment to um what feels like a very definitive like movie ending <laughs> which mm. but i mean that's just you know i think that's just one of the things that comes with the form if you're going to make this type of movie you get into a tricky spot when you're trying to finish it because life goes on yeah. movies end <laughs> you know what that's so funny because it reminds me of um uh the river uh, that jean renoir and like um how that film ends and it's kind of like they're all together but it ends with the birth of a new child and it's like set by the river and the endless cycle of life and actually they can keep going and that's the thing and it's another that's a coming of age film and I think that's such an it is really interesting how do you how do you show an ending when it's not ending um Mm. yeah I think I, I I I felt very moved by um the moments where they would, I suppose that you'd say the monologues of when they kind of talk about why they're yeah. in there. Um, I found it particularly moving, but I also found just like the, the um, uh, is it Navinia? Mm-hmm. No, anyway, there's just this scene where like she's, she's going home to her mum's for the weekend and she knocks on the door and you kind of think, oh, cool, she's getting to go home for the weekend. And it's like, what are you doing? I'm going out. Mm-hmm. And it's just like that moment. It's just kind of some things where it doesn't even have to be that wordy. It's just like that. That mm-hmm. I think sometimes and they, how they play those scenes are great. And I think there is a really naturalism. I think, you know, this is called the myth because that's the fam uh, colloquialism. And you do get, you, they are feel like there's a Sicily quality in there, but there's also kind of like, I love the way that there's a really good scene where it's like, we're not your parents. We are charged with looking after you. And I think that's also gets into it as well. Like they do have these kind of familial um, friction and stuff like that, but fundamentally they are not here to raise them. They're here to just kind of help them get to where they need until adulthood and they can leave. But um but yeah, I think I, I, I it, it's it, I never felt like they were reading from a script. It felt like it yeah. could honestly they I don't know, maybe I'd be interested to know like the, what kind of rehearsal period they did. Did they do like a Mike Lee extensive in depth <laughs> like, where there's no script, you just go with the flow. Well, on that note, it's time for my fate to black relief uh to do our screen, stream, <laughs> or skip recommendations. I thought that was quite good. <laughs> uh, uh, Hannah? Uh, I'm going to say screen. Um, I think it's just just a really important film. Not to watch right now, forever. I agree. Uh, Clarice? Yeah, I'd say screen as well. I think... 
I think you it also helps to have that sort of quiet of the cinema, just a little bit of like intimacy around it. I'm going to say screen as well. I like the handheld camera work uh, at various points throughout the film as well. They really added to some of the scenes. So yeah, three thumbs up for Lemif. Well, we'll see if we have thumbs up for this week's We're going to at some point have to like hold the like for as long <laughs> what's the longest we can hold it for <laughs> well after the good news that the Oscars would be hosted for the first time in three years by Wanda Sykes, Amy Schumer and Regina Hall the Academy and NBC who televises the ceremony revealed several categories would not be delivered live instead the Oscars for documentary short film editing, makeup and hairstyling original score, production design animated short live action short and sound will be handed out before the live show airs and the winners will be edited in at some point of the three-hour show will this draw more viewers in after waning ratings or will the move simply piss off the active oscars audience well we're gonna deliver you our opinions i, think I feel like you should here. go first you guys because you have like you have far more intense feelings about this than I do and I, I kind of just want to give you the floor to say what you need to say yeah I mean I'll, I'll I what I will say about this is that getting to stay up as a child until like 5 a.m <laughs> watching the Oscars is kind of how I learned about how film works getting to see oh, here's the person who did the production design for Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and who, oh, oh, the makeup and the hairstyle and the costuming, that's different. I see it like that's how I, I learned on a basic level about how a film is made. So I feel sad for like the other little me's out there who are now going to not have this opportunity in the same way, at least. So Riamon, what was what's your take? Yeah, I didn't like this. I didn't like this. I get that there's a whole ratings issue and everything else, but the Oscars are the number one award ceremony in our industry. And a lot of people work very hard in the hopes of getting to that stage. If they are lucky enough to have their name called, they should be celebrated not just by the audience in attendance, but by the audience watching on TV live. And I feel like by announcing something like this, there's a message you're sending to the people who are now not going to have their categories uh, read out uh, on, you know, on on a live TV. Like, you know, that, that it's not sort of as sexy, as popular, as a best actor. These awards, regardless, like, e- even if they weren't essential, to the makeup of a film. These, <laughs> these, some of these particular awards are, you're talking about film editing, you're talking about original score, which you know that I'm very, very interested in. Like these things deserve to be given just as much attention and love as a best actor, as a best picture, as everything else. So yeah, I didn't like this. Uh, I feel, and it's really weird because I know the Academy tried to do something similar to this a few years ago, but the backlash was fierce then that they reverted, they changed course to have all the awards again. And I feel like 
given the reaction that we've seen over the past few weeks to this news, over, over the past week to this news, something similar may happen because I don't like it and many others don't like it either. Hannah. <laughs> I feel like uh, a traitor to my profession. <laughs> and, you know what? I think I just want to, like, I suppose contextually, like, I used to love watching the Oscars before I started working in journalism. <laughs> um, and I have spent, I spent a good, probably like five, six years working at, at an entertainment news outlet, showbiz outlet, where our job was to cover <laughs> these stay up overnight shifts, work it, knock out as many stories as possible, like pre-show, all this type of stuff. So in a way, like, I associate it with, like, a hard-working endeavour. Like, I'm not going to stay up to watch the Oscars unless someone pays me to do, like, Sky Cinema, if you're uh, listening. <laughs> I'll do your I'll do your analysis if you want. But, like, other than that, I just feel like I'm just... The way I would rather just watch it in the kind of... The convenience of the world that we are in right now, where I can actually wake up in the morning and just like read a newspaper article or go on YouTube and watch the speeches or whatever, do the anything that I want to do. I mean, it's like, I mean, I guess I said to you guys, like, I don't watch SNL live, I just watch all the because they post all the all the skits. And I prefer it that way. That way I can just like watch it at my leisure and skip the bits I don't want to watch. And that's just my personal, that's just my personal way of doing it. So totally accept that people like who are very invested are like really upset about this. But personally, uh, it doesn't, um, I don't really have that strong opinion about it either way. I think like the Oscars are long as fuck. (laughs) And, And I don't know, maybe they should cut down some of the performances or like the basic dialogue or the pwc bit <laughs> cut out the pwc bit <laughs> yeah no if you want to cut out if you want to cut stuff out for time you know cut the jokes cut the bits cut your you know me i i love a good montage you ed- editor of a montage is literally in my twitter bio but cut down on a couple of the montages you don't cut awards in the biggest awards ceremony of I honestly year. think more people would watch it if they got rid of... My hot take is that if they actually just did it as an awards thing where it's like, all we're going to show you is bring out a host, give it a quick little joke, read out the things, and then announce the winner, move on. If they just did that without all the fucking fanfare... I think more people would tune in because they're like, I don't have to spend a whole three hours watching it. Like, if they want to get, like... And that way, everyone's covered and we get... Because that's fundamentally what it's about. It's about recognising the winners. It's not about... If that's if that's, if that's that's the purest thing that people are saying, like, everyone should get their time on stage, well, then just literally make it about only show, that, only show them actually just reading out the awards, uh, nominations and winners, and then there you go. Well, I think part of it is... You know, the moment on stage, which is a huge sort of landmark thing for anybody who's lucky enough to win. But part of Oscars night has always been about the celebration of cinema. Right, but, you can se- but the whole point is celebrating the winners. So you can't have it all. You can't be like, well, I want to have everyone represented. And then I also want two hours of like performances and skits and all this type of stuff. I think if anything, like if you want to keep it to the purest sense of it, you can celebrate these awards by just celebrating the winners and nominations and you can just do that by getting it over and done with just get it over and done with so we can move on i think like it's interesting though because 
this conversation is assuming that the Oscars should be seeking more audience. I think my opinion is, look, (laughs) there are people who love watching the Oscars. There are people who, like, for me, the Oscars is my Super Bowl. No one's saying the Super Bowl should be cut shorter. Like, Mm -mm. (laughs) you know, there are people for whom it's the Oscars is a night event. Yes, that's a much smaller number of people than people who want to tune into the Super Bowl every year. But I feel like what is the point of trying to chase after an audience who kind of like you, Hannah, you don't really want to watch it. You just want to know who won. Well, okay, the well, the you can audience look in is the next, people yeah. who are finding we're not watching TV in the same way that we used to be. Yeah, um, so it's like, what's the point in trying to cater to them? Cater to the people who like watching the Oscars. Cut the budget. Don't, like, the stage design is so complicated every year. <laughs> they spend so much on this fucking ridiculous stage don't need that (laughs) just cut the budget you know shrink it down powerpoint presentation honestly i love that like one of those like meme powerpoint presentations they're like in (laughs) spider-man in memoriam in comic sand (laughs) just do that you know like i think they the problem that the oscars have gotten them into is that they want to have super bowl numbers or they want to have the numbers that they used to have that's ridiculous they're never going to come back like i would much rather that we have the show as it was but you nbc oscars just reassess Reassess i did see something charging so much for advertising space make the stage smaller make the gift bags celebrities less (laughs) well uh, yeah (laughs) The gift bags will always be the gift bags, but I, I, I just think it's this is all really pointless, honestly. And most people who are watching it anyway are watching it for the pretty dresses. Like I'm not gonna lie, that's what the red carpet probably gets more figures than the actual ceremony because people want to see what people are wearing. I don't know. I think in this day and age, we need to be like, stop trying to chasing chase an audience that doesn't exist anymore because our viewing patterns are that. But then at the same time, like. I I I do believe that they should just shorten it because there's a lot of that. It's just so baggy sometimes. You're like, why am I watching Oh, it? but that's part of it. See, this is the thing. I don't want them to shorten it because pre-me doing working, I used to have a party and I would invite everybody over and we would get fucking smashed and you need the entire Oscars length to get to the point. <laughs> you know, I don't want it shorter because that's less time to get drunk. I want the full, and I think that's the thing. It's like people have traditions around it, and people like lots of people enjoy <laughs> it being baggy. That's like part of what the Oscars. It's like it would be like having Saturday Night Live, but all the writing's good. No, that's not what SNL is. You've got to have bad writing too, <laughs> otherwise it's not the same thing. I will like, not that's... accept this SNL slander. <laughs> oh, I love Sorry, this some shit. Of the, you cannot get through an entire episode of SNL with every sketch being No, but this is why, happened. this is why, uh, Clarice, you've just proved my point. This is why <laughs> you watch it on YouTube. Because you if a, if a sketch isn't for you, you're just like, next one. Oh, I'll but pick it's not, ones that that's you the watch. thing. It's not the same experience. It's different watching SNL live, though, because you go through the whole emotional roller coaster. It's like a full thing. Yeah, but I it's can't like, watch SNL live. Life. I'm in the UK. I mean, that's a good point. But, you know, it's like... <laughs> if I, if I, don't get me wrong. If, I, if I, I was in the US and could watch it live... But also, I just don't like the advert. I'm just a very like efficient viewer nowadays. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I don't need the faff. 
I want to get through it. <laughs> this is what's annoyed me about now, that now is introduced adverts now. It's honestly, we're getting played, y'all. <laughs> I, I just, I, I love Clarissa's hot take. Keep the Oscars long so I can get drunk. Honestly. This, this, this is brilliant. I, I, just I see remember someone... the year that Christoph Waltz one, I was so drunk that I sobbed the whole way through his speech because I was like, <laughs> look at him go! <laughs> Christoph Waltz <laughs> winning an Oscar. Um, I did uh, I did see a tweet. I don't know, did you, did you tweet or did you say it? I can't remember, but someone said, just give the show give this show to PBS. I was like, literally a full day. <laughs> yeah. At, like a proper actor's studio in-depth conversation with each one of the winners. <laughs> Honestly, why not? Oh just, I fe- just feel like there's enough there is enough hardcore oscars viewing viewers who would come back every year that they can shrink it down and just cater to them like independent spirit awards i watch those every year they're fantastic really funny, yeah but i've watched independent of... spirit awards but it's not three hours long is it it's pretty long i don't know if it's three it's not the same length as the and oscars, also but... aubrey, Pla- aubrey plaza's hosting that's what it needs well, that as well, I would say they should think about. But this the is the thing. That's carefully. funny because it takes a piss. Like, Oscars is what I find frustrating. It's so sincere. Like, I mean, the Oscars aren't going to get like the gay choir of San Francisco or whatever to do like a whole things, a whole fucking montage song about what's gay and like ending on a massive one with Laura Dern. Laura Dern is gay or whatever it is. Like,. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean like that that would never happen at the Oscars true and but... if, if anything if they want people to engage with the Oscars more they need to if any, they need to push the boat out like just be weird just make it weird <laughs> yeah or have like when Lady Gaga did the tribute to Sound of Music that's perfect that's beautiful she had beautiful voice beautiful dress beautiful music like I think the Oscars can be sincere I What's think the your problem favorite has been Oscars moment they... What's I your favorite Oscar, Oscar moment in recent years? I think about like oh Moonlight. That was very. Funny. Oh, I was going to say when they sang "Everything Is Awesome" with Tegan and Sarah. That was great. <laughs> that was so good. See, I love when they perform the songs live, and I love Shallow Live was incredible. Oh, that might be my favorite moment. Oh, they were so close to each other, and everyone thought they were going to kiss, but obviously they weren't going. Oh my god! They still like made us believe it was going to happen. Like I love that's why I love the Oscars. I love that stuff. I love really over the top dramatic. Mm. Like I like the yeah. sincerity. Yeah, I loved watching it in bed on my laptop the next morning. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, just, okay. Oh, where is your it. mind, Amon? Oh. <laughs> wow. Wow. Come You're on. the one who said it. I said <laughs> I was watching it in bed, as in I was watching it in the morning because I watch it in the morning. Okay. But you had to sully it, didn't you? Come on, come on! Your dirty mind <laughs> is just too much. I just feel like, can you just stop? Really, it's inappropriate. Stop with your dirty language. It's just too much. It's every week with you. <laughs> I'll I'll be better. <laughs> you know what? Don't be better. Be best. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Mm. Guess it's probably time to wrap up after that. Um, I just want to thank my agent. I want to thank my manager. I want to thank God. I want to thank uh, my parents. I want to thank my dog. I want to thank my dead dog. I want to thank my best friend. I want to thank my worst enemy. I'd like to dedicate this to 
every little kid who ever wore shoes, this one's for you. <laughs> I'm being played off, but you know, man, this is this moment is beautiful. It's it's true when they say that Los Angeles truly is a city of angels. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to add, I mean, it's part of my newsletter, so it's gone and you can't read it if you didn't. But I spoke to an Oscar nominee this week, Nadia Stacey, who did the gorgeous makeup and hairstyling for Cruella. Uh, I hope she wins. She did a wonderful job. Uh, And I'm going to have more production and costumey makeup people hopefully in the future because i really like speaking to them <laughs> therese's costumes corner is expanding yeah. love it yeah but it'll Woo! be like costumes and hair and production and all good visual things in the closet uh, with clarice in the closet with clarice <laughs> nine minutes oh, of celluloid heaven <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is the safest for you. Do subscribe, rate, and leave us a review if you love the podcast. It really does make a difference, we promise. And also tweet us at Fate to Black Pod if you have something you'd love for us to shout out next week. And you can also follow us individually. I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. I'm at Among Woman on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Hannah Flint on Twitter and at Hannah Nesflint on Instagram. Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. <laughs>